If you'll open your Bible this morning to the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible, and find chapter number 32. And while you're finding that, I want to ask you a question today. If it were possible to get all the Christians in the world in one room at the same time, and that's not possible because there are 2.38 billion Christians in the world. At least there are that many people who profess to be Christians. So that's almost or approximately one-third of the human population says that they are Christians. And so if we could get all the Christians under one roof and ask them this question, how do you think the answers would come in? Here's the question. If the moderator got up and said to all the Christians, we're living in a world that is becoming more and more secular, that is becoming less and less godly, and that is becoming more and more hostile to the Christian faith itself, what should we as Christians be known for in the world in which we live? So that's the question. What should we be known for? And all of us who are Christians, we began to talk about that and think about that. And we turned in our answers, and then they began to assimilate those answers. I think the number one answer to that question would be this. We as Christians should be known for what we believe. I think that's what most of us would say. We should be known as people who believe the Bible is the perfect Word of God. We should be known as people who believe that Jesus Christ died on that cross to pay for our sins, and that it is through Him and Him alone that we can be saved. We should be known as people who believe that God is sovereign, absolutely in control of every situation, and that He has an unbelievable way of bringing good out of the worst imaginable situations in life. And we could go on with different things that we would leave. But the point is, the first answer to that question would be, we should be known for what we believe. And that's true, we should. I think the second answer would be, we should be known not only for what we believe, but as Christians, we should be known for how we behave. We don't smoke, we don't chew, and we don't go with girls who do, right? I mean... We ought to be known for that. As Christians, we should be known, not as perfect people because we're not, but we should be known as people who try to live our lives by the Ten Commandments, who try to live by the Golden Rule and the Sermon on the Mount. We're not perfect. We sin and stumble and fall often, but we should be known by our behavior. There should be something about our behavior that is different from those who are not saved. Now, the fact is, of the 2.38 billion people who might answer that question, question, what should we be known for? I think those would be the overarching answers. We should be known for what we believe, and we should be known for how we behave. But friend, let me tell you, there's a third answer that should be given in response to that question, and that is this. As Christians, we should be known as people who are seeking to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And without that, we have good theology and we have a holy lifestyle, but there's something missing in our lives. We should be known as people who are becoming more like Jesus in our hearts, in our attitude, in our personality, in our demeanor, in the way we treat others, in the way we respond to difficult situations in life. We should be becoming more and more like Jesus. And so the question is, how do we do that? How can we as sinful human beings who have been saved by the grace of God, how can we become more like Jesus? Well, one of the ways that God has designed for you and for me to become more Christ-like is by allowing us to face 
problems in our lives. And by the way we respond to those problems, by the way we handle those difficulties, we can either become more like Jesus or we can become more like we already are, less like Jesus. Depending on how we respond to difficulties and problems in our lives will determine whether or not we live lives of victory or whether we live lives of defeat. Now, in our scripture this morning, in Genesis chapter 32, we're studying and reading about a man named Jacob, and Jacob had a problem in his life, just like all of us have problems in our lives, and Jacob's problem, in a nutshell, was this. He was afraid. Fear was his problem. Look in verse number seven, and we see this in one verse. It simply says, so Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Now, the question is this, why was Jacob afraid? Well, as we saw last Sunday, he was afraid because over 20 years ago, he had cheated his brother Esau out of their father's blessing. And in response to that, Esau had made a vow that he would kill his brother Jacob. And so when their mother, Rebekah, found out about that, she went to Jacob and said, Jacob, your brother Esau is going to kill you. You need to not only get out of the house, you need to get out of the country. You need to go live with your uncle, my brother Laban in a place called Haran or Haran, and when you're there, uh, after you've been there for a few days, your brother will cool down, you can come back home. Well, Jacob did it. He took his mother's advice. He left Israel. He went to either modern-day Syria or modern-day Turkey, depending on where you locate this place of Haran, but he was there not for a few days. He was there for over 20 years, and at the end of those 20 years, God spoke to him and said, Jacob, it is time for you to go back home. It's time for you to go back to Israel. Time for you to go back to your homeland. And so he did. But Jacob knew that in traveling from where he had lived for over 20 years back to Israel, he would have to pass through the area where his brother Esau lived, and he was afraid. Now think about this. Jacob, for over 20 years, has been afraid which that would naturally cause anxiety. And as we saw last week, he came to a place in his life where he was all alone as he waited to meet his brother. That's a, those three things are pretty, three major problems. When you feel afraid, anxious, and then on top of that, you're all alone. And so you can imagine, we can all relate to what Jacob was feeling and what Jacob was going through. And so those were Jacob's problems. And I'm asking you today, what is your problem? I started to ask, how many today have, you know, here have a problem, raise your hand. But I think we would all raise our hand. We all have a problem. But I'm not asking you, do you have a problem today? I'm asking you today, what is your main problem? Is it fear? Is it anxiety? Is it that you're alone? Maybe your problem is emotional, financial, physical, relational. It could be a thousand different problems. But that problem that God has allowed into your life is something that God wants to use to help you become more like Christ, and you can become more like Christ if you will learn to handle that problem correctly. Now, most of us, at least this is my experience, but I think it's all of our experience. When we have a problem, let's just take the three problems that Jacob had. He was afraid, he was anxious, and he was alone. Most of us, when we have one of those problems or a similar problem to that, or any really any type of problem, 
What we do is we wrestle with that problem. We identify the problem and we say, I don't want this problem to be in my life. And so we begin to wrestle with that problem. We say, I want to eliminate this problem from my life. When we wake up in the morning, that problem is on our mind. We go through the day, problem's still there. We go to bed at night, we're still thinking about that problem. And we wrestle with that problem. Now, the purpose of this message this morning in one sentence is simply this. Don't wrestle with your problem. Wrestle with God about your problem. I've learned this in life. When we have a problem, let's just take anxiety. That's something we can all relate to. Let's just say today you're really struggling with anxiety. You're nervous. You're restless. You can't relax. You can't slow your mind down. You're anxious. You're uptight. Well, when we're going through a season like that, if we say, I want to rid myself of this anxiety, I want to eliminate this problem from my life, the natural human thing to do is wrestle with that anxiety. And so all day long, we're thinking, don't be anxious, don't be uptight, don't be nervous. And we just, it's, it's, it's a, the whole day is a wrestling match with anxiety. But I've noticed this, the more we wrestle with anxiety, the bigger anxiety becomes in our life because anxiety now is the focus of our life. But if we can learn how, instead of wrestling with anxiety, to wrestle with God about our anxiety, then God, not the anxiety, becomes the focus of our lives. Now, in this scripture we're reading today, Jacob, Three problems, afraid, anxious, and alone. And yet we read in verse 22 how he dealt with that problem. And it says, and he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. That word Jabbok, that was kind of a tributary coming out of the Jordan River. And so they cross over the shallow part of that and uh, to get to where they're going. And we read in the next verse that he took them, sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, alone in his fear and alone in his anxiety. It's interesting as they cross that, that river, Jabbok, that word Jabbok literally means he will empty. He will empty. And what we see here is that God was emptying Jacob of everything that he had depended on to help him with his fear and to help him with his anxiety. For the first time in over 20 years, Jacob is all alone. When he had left Israel, he was alone. But when he got to where he was going, he ended up getting married. In fact, we saw last week, married two wives, had at this time 11 sons, one daughter, many servants, lots of people working for him. But here he is alone. He is all by himself. And what is God doing? God is emptying Jacob of everything that he could depend on to help him with his problems. Look again in verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone and a man, in my Bible, that word man is capitalized. It's referring to God. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And so in his anxiety and in his aloneness, what does Jacob do? Jacob ends up getting in a wrestling match with God. God appeared to Jacob and they have this wrestling match that goes on all night long. So what I'm saying to you today is we need to learn something from Jacob. We need to learn how to wrestle with God in prayer with our problems instead of wrestling with our problems themselves. And I want to mention today three advantages to wrestling with God as opposed to wrestling with our problems. Number one, when we wrestle with God, 
When we wrestle with God, our focus is on Him, not on our problem. Our focus. So much of life is about focus. What do we think about? What are we looking to? What are we focused on? Well, when we're wrestling with God, we're focusing on Him. And that's what Jacob was focused on. When God showed up on this particular night, Jacob was all alone, and they had this wrestling match. Jacob is no longer thinking primarily about his fear or his anxiety or even the fact that he's alone. He's focusing in on God. And so when we can learn to wrestle with God, our focus changes, and now we're focusing on God instead of focusing on our problem. Now, let's build on that. When we focus on God, what happens next? Well, when we focus on God, we get closer to God. Here you can imagine Jacob all night, he's wrestling with God. Well, as that wrestling match was going on, he is, you know, by definition, (laughs) he's getting closer to God. Wrestling is one of those sports that you can't do from a distance. You know, there's some sports you can play and not get too close to the other people who are playing that sport with you. If you play golf, you don't have to be too close to the other golfers. If you play tennis, you're a long way off and there's a net that separates you. But when you wrestle with somebody... You are very, very close uh, to that person. I don't know how many of you are fans of wrestling, but I grew up being a fan of, uh, of professional wrestling, and I want to say for the record, I believe it's not fake. I believe that wrestling is real. And I know a lot of people think it's fake, but I don't think they would get in the ring with those people that they're calling it to be a fake sport with. But, uh, but in wrestling, what happens? In wrestling, You are right up against the other person. Now, think about this. You've got a problem in your life. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's that you're alone. Maybe it's that you're afraid. Maybe it's that you're depressed. Maybe it's it's a sin problem. Maybe it's pornography. Or maybe it's gambling. Or maybe it's alcohol. Or maybe it's drugs. Or maybe it's whatever it might be. And you're wrestling with this problem all day long. You just wrestle. You say, I want to rid myself of this problem. Well, listen to me. The more you wrestle with that problem, the closer that problem is going to get to you. You've got to change your focus from the problem to the God who can deliver you from that problem. And that's what Jacob did. He's wrestling with God. And the longer he wrestles with God and the more intensely he wrestles with God, the closer he gets to God. You see, when you're, whatever your focus is on, that's what you're going to get closer to. My focus is on God. I'm going to get closer to God. If my focus is on my anxiety, I'm going to just become more anxious. And so we have to change our focus so that we can get closer to God. Now watch this. Just continue to build on the logic of this. As we get closer to God, what does God do? God changes us. God changed us. That's what he did in Jacob's case. God changed Jacob. Look again in verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day, until dawn, until the sun came up. Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, that is, God saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And God said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. God says to Jacob after an all-night wrestling match, he says, Jacob, you have prevailed against me. Now, we read that. And we think, now, what does this mean? 
Jacob prevailed against God? Is it that God and Jacob are in a wrestling match and Jacob body slams God and the referee comes in and pins him, one, two, three, Jacob beats God? No, friend, nobody beats God. At the end of this wrestling match, God wasn't limping. Jacob was limping. God won the match in that sense. God's the one who put Jacob's hip out of joint. He dislocated his hip. But when God said to Jacob, you have wrestled with God and have prevailed, what was he saying? He was saying, Jacob, I won the wrestling match. You're limping. I'm not. Your hip's out of socket. Mine isn't. I won the match. But Jacob, you have won in another way. You have won in that all night long you have held on to me. And you have refused to let go of me. And you have learned that in your weakness, that's where strength is found. You see, Jacob, as he held on to God in his anxiety, in his fear, and in his aloneness, he held on to God and said, God, I'm not going to let you go until and unless you bless me. And God blessed him, and God changed his name from Jacob, which means deceiver, to Israel, which means prince with God, one who struggles with God and prevails, again, prevailing in the sense of holding on and pleasing God by not letting go. And so what I'm saying here is when we get closer to God, he changes us on the inside and he makes us into new people the people that he wants us to be. Now, there's one other thing that's interesting to me in this story, and I want you to see it today, and that is after God had changed Jacob from a deceiving, conniving, uh, deceptive cheater, really, into a, a person who would become the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, in verse 29, Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name. He's asking God his name. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen the face of God, Jacob said. I've seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. The word Peniel just means face of God. And uh, Jacob said, I've seen God's face, and my life is preserved. I, 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 my life is spared. I'm still living. I didn't die after seeing God. Verse 31, just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him. Now it's day, it's daybreak. But look at the last of verse 31. And he limped on his hip. If I were to ask you today, how has God changed your life? How would you answer that question? For those of us who are saved, we would say, well, God's changed my life. God's forgiven my sins. God's given me peace and, and uh, joy in my life. Well, that's, 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 those are the main blessings, and those are the blessings we get early on. But let me ask you this. Since you got saved, some of us here today have been saved 20 and 30 and 40 years. Since you got saved, how has God changed your life? How is God helping you to live your life? I was thinking about my own life as I was preparing this sermon. I thought, now, God, you've changed my life in so many ways. But in a more, in the most re what is the most recent thing that you have done in my life in a practical way to change me, to change how I look at something? And I, I think this is it. You may hear this and say, well, that's not that big a deal. But to me, it is a very, very big deal. I think all of us know what it feels like to be overwhelmed with responsibilities and circumstances in life. And back in around 2016, I began to feel that. I just began to feel overwhelmed. And I began to feel like, man, I've got so much going on and I'm, it's just things that used to be easy for me. It's just, it's, it's overwhelming to me. And so I try to figure out, well, how can I be less overwhelmed? I even wrote a booklet on it, When My Heart is Overwhelmed. And, uh, 
And I'm trying to figure this out, and I did some things. I made some adjustments to my life and schedule, and, and uh, even one day in a doctor's office, doctor said to me, you've got to slow down and do, you've got to figure out how to live your life a little bit differently. And I made some changes, and it helped. But still, on and off, not constantly since 2016, but on and off, I just had this feeling of being overwhelmed. Well, fairly recently, I was praying about that. I thought, God, I'm, I'm getting better on feeling overwhelmed, but I still get that feeling sometime, and it just, it just causes your mind to race, and it just, you know, you just feel the weight of the world on your shoulder when really it isn't there, but you feel like it is. And not too long ago, as I was just thinking about that and praying about that, God just put a thought in my mind. And this thought has lifted a feeling of being overwhelmed that I've been battling on and off for almost six years. And God, here was the thought that God put on in my mind. Do one thing at a time. Do one thing at a time. You see, the way I had been trying to deal with being overwhelmed was just to do less things. And sometimes we do need to do less things because we may be doing too many things. We may be doing things God doesn't expect us to do. But when God put that on my mind, do one thing at a time. It changed my perspective. I was speaking at a service not too long ago, and when it was about to be my time to speak, I just, I just had this peace, and, this, and I thought, God, I'm not thinking about where I'm going to go after this. I'm not thinking about where I'm speaking at next or what I'm doing. I, my mind is focused in on this moment. I'm here. It's now, and I'm doing one thing at a time. And I'm just saying for me, and that may not resonate with anybody else in the room, or it may if you're struggling with feelings of overwhelm, but for me, doing one thing at a time, living in the moment, trusting God in the moment in which we live. The clock on the wall says it is 10.06 a.m. on Sunday morning. Now, many today, if you're feeling overwhelmed, you're not even thinking about 10.06 you're thinking about what you're going to do at 12.30 or 3 o'clock or 6 o'clock tonight or this week or the responsibilities you have or maybe a big doctor's appointment or something going on this week. And here we are on Sunday morning in church at 10.06, sermons being preached, but your mind's not in 10.06. Your mind is what all's coming up this week. Well, I'm telling you, you live with that long enough, you're going to develop some anxiety because you're not living in the moment. Did you know if you study like professional athletes and even actors, the big thing now in Hollywood and in sports is this whole thing about focus and about living in the moment. In fact, much of the meditation that is taking place from these Eastern religions is all in the name of to try to focus and to try to live in the moment and to breathe. And much of yoga and, and meditation, it's all about this trying to empty our minds. And this is what they say, empty your minds of everything that could be a distraction and focus on the present moment. The difference between Christian meditation and that Eastern non-Christian meditation is that while that type of meditation says empty your mind of everything that could be a distraction, Christian meditation says don't empty your mind, fill your mind with the presence of God with you in this moment. And it is God and his presence with you that will give you peace. And so what we need is to fill our minds that God is with us in this moment, right here 
and right now. Now it's 10.08. Some of you are thinking, John, it's time. We'll wrap this thing up. <laughs> it's getting later. Well, it is. See, it's gone from 10.06 to 10.07 and 10.08. But I'll tell you this. It's a beautiful thing when you can get to a place in your life where you can enjoy 10.06, you can enjoy 10.07, you can enjoy 10.08. You're in the moment. And you're not in the moment because you emptied your mind out of all the things that were bothering you. You're in the moment because you filled your mind your mind with the presence of God, and you're taking what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about tomorrow. You see, in that same spirit, we could say it this way, don't worry about this afternoon. Don't worry about tonight. Don't worry about lunch. Don't worry about anything. Just in this moment, trust Jesus. And I'm telling you that it's, changed. it's the most recent thing that God has done for me that has changed my life. I'm not thinking about the next service or the next sermon. I'm thinking about, now it's 10.09. And this is what happens to me up here. It just keeps going on. But I'm just thinking about the moment that I'm living in. Now, one of the ways that we know that God has touched us, just like God touched Jacob's hip and put it out of socket, one of the ways that we know that God has changed us. I want you to get this. This is in your bulletin, but I want you to see it on the screen. One of the signs that God has changed us is that we limp instead of strut. You know, when God has touched us, the strutting stops and the limping begins. When I first began preaching many years ago, I heard a story that has stuck with me for all these years. It was about a young preacher and young preachers, and I've been one, are bad to strut. And the story was about a young preacher one Sunday who was preaching, and he was excited about his sermon and so on, and he, he kind of strutted up off the ground level up onto the platform, and he strutted up to the pulpit, and he strutted behind the pulpit, and he opened his Bible, and for the next 30 minutes he strutted, and he just fell flat on his face. It was one of the worst sermons anybody ever heard. When he got finished, he was ashamed and he was embarrassed and he closed his Bible and he put his hands in his pocket and he walked off the platform and he walked down the steps and he went back to the front row where he had been sitting. And An old deacon in that church was watching this whole thing. He had watched him strut up there and he had watched him fall on his face and he had watched him humbly walk off the platform. And that deacon wanted to encourage that young man, but he also wanted to say something that might help him going forward. So after the service, he walked over to that young preacher whom he loved and put his arm around him and he said, preacher, I don't want to say this in the wrong way, but I want to say it honestly. He said, if you would have walked up on that platform with the same humility that you walked down off that platform, it would have been a lot better sermon. <laughs> and I never have. You see, when God has touched us Think about this in Jacob's life. For the rest of Jacob's life, he walked with a limp. Every step he took was a reminder to him that God had touched him 
and that God had changed his life. Now, as I was getting ready, I was this sermon, I can't can't get it out of my mind. I'm I'm glad it's finally time to preach it because all morning I've been thinking about what Jacob must have been feeling and what this must have been like. Every step Jacob took, he was reminded that God had touched him. Let me say it this way. God had touched Jacob in such a way that it was obvious to Jacob and it was obvious to everybody else that he had been touched by God. I'm just thinking about that all week, last night, this morning, that God, you touched Jacob, and now he's not strutting. Now he's limping, and that limp is a sign of two things, dependence and humility. Dependence on his staff, because now he's walking with his staff, where beforehand he had that staff, just in case an animal came up, he could knock that animal out of his way. But now that staff is like a cane, And that staff is helping Jacob walk. Dependence and humility. One of the ways that we know God has touched us is that we have stopped strutting and we have started limping. When God touches us, now think about this, it's obvious to us and it's obvious to others that we've been touched by God. There's a softness, there's a gentleness there's a, there's a humility. There's a dependence on God. You know, the, this morning as I just was mulling this sermon over one last time, just, get, just getting my own mind ready to, to preach this sermon, a song came to my mind. It's an old song. I think Bill Gaither wrote this song, He Touched Me. One of the greatest songs ever been written. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened. And now I know he touched me and made me whole. Notice in that song, Bill Gaither said, he touched me. And as a result of him touching me, there's joy in my life. I read on Friday morning in my Bible reading, one of the verses I read was in Psalm 4 in verse 7. And David said to God, he said, you have put gladness in my heart. And I read that verse and I said, me too, God. (laughs) Me too. You put gladness in my heart. You have touched me. You have given me peace. And you have taught me to depend on you and to trust fully in you. And God, as a result of trusting in you, there can be no strutting by me. It is limping. It is dependence. It is humility. It is total reliance upon the fact that you have touched me. And I'm trusting in you. And I'm not trusting in me. And that's what David was saying. You put gladness in my heart. And that's what Gaither was saying. He touched me and oh, the joy that floods my soul. I'm asking you today, has God touched you in such a way that it is obvious to you and that is obvious to others that something has happened in your life? You know, in just a moment, I'm gonna do what we always do. I'm gonna give you a chance to get saved if you've never been saved. Bobby Grimes, where did you get away to? Man, we, I just want to say, I'm blessed every Sunday in this service to see friends that you have invited to church get saved. And I want to say something else. The rest of us should be doing during the week whatever you're doing during the week to get our unsaved friends in church so that five minutes from right now, they can get saved too. If what he's doing during the week could catch fire in all of us, we, we baptized five this morning, we might be baptizing 50 or 60 people up there if we would all do that. Amen. So I'm gonna give people a chance to get saved. You, you, some, see, some of you today need a saving touch. You need to be saved. 
But before we do that, how about those of us who've already been saved? This is what God put on my heart this morning. I just felt like God said, John, say this, park the sermon right here, and give people a chance to respond. The Christians in the room a chance to respond. Some of you today need a healing touch from God. Your body is sick. And you need a healing touch. Does God heal every disease on earth? No. Many diseases are healed in heaven. Does God heal diseases on earth? Yes, many times he does. We have to trust him for when he does it here and when he does it there. But God is a healer. Some of you today, you need a delivering touch. Maybe there's an alcohol addiction. Maybe there's a pornography addiction. Maybe there's a fear and an anxiety problem. And you need to be delivered from that. In Psalm 34, 4, King David said, I sought the Lord And he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. David was afraid just like Jacob was afraid. And he sought the Lord and he wrestled with God. And what did God do? God delivered him from all of his fears. Some of you today, when I said, hey, Jacob was a man who was afraid and anxious and alone, you're thinking, man, did I pick a good day to come to church because that's me. I'm afraid and I'm anxious and I feel like I'm all alone. Well, God can deliver you from that today. Some of you need a touch of peace. Some of you need a touch of wisdom and direction. Some of you, you know what you need? You just need a fresh touch from God. Your problem is not primarily sinfulness. Your problem is staleness. And you just need a fresh touch from God. You know, in the Old Testament, King David got anointed three times with oil before he became king. Before he became king of Israel, he had three anointings. He had a fresh anointing for everything God had called him to do. And sometimes in all of our lives, we just say, God, it's not primarily sin, but it is staleness. And God, I need a fresh touch. I need a freshness in my life. 